If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM. Let's create. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, Goldman Sachs is getting back into the private equity game for the first time since the financial crisis. And speaking of the banks, the battle is heating up for what they are calling person-to-person payments. We'll tell you all about it next. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Good afternoon. Hope you all had a good weekend. Welcome to the Money Beat podcast. Paul and Stephen here in the studio, joined today by our dear friends, Liz Hoffman and Aaron Lucchetti. Uh, Liz, I miss you, Liz. It's good to be back, Paul. Is it good? You guys don't know, Paul and I used to be deskmates. We used to be deskmates Uh, until very recently. And and then I moved, and it's been tough on both of us. You moved on. I stayed behind. You moved on. I still remember. Oh, Paul, you've expanded your space. Like, I mean, I have. I've totally uh, taken over Liz's empty desk now. There's it's like a really, palatial uh, palace over there. It in Paul's is nice. Land. That's it's prime nice. real estate. Office real estate. Next, sit next to Paul Vigna. I mean, the bidders are going to start lining up. <laughs> Did you say the bitters, as in B I T T? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they'll definitely line up. Right, right, right. If you're bitter, you want to sit near me. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting, folks. Bank earnings season kind of winding down. You still have some banks on the, the earnings calendar, but the big ones have all reported. We've had a lot of bank news. And, uh, and Liz Hoffman, this, this story you wrote, was this an unexpected piece of bank news? I'm trying to kind of frame the, the, the time we're in here. Sure. So uh, there's a story last week uh, that Goldman Sachs uh, is raising a new private equity fund, a new fund for buyouts, uh, between 5 and $8 billion is what they're targeting. Um, I mean, typically, uh, fundraisers are disclosed or discussed once they've been raised. Mm-hmm. People are a little reluctant to talk about their goals. Um, so it did you know, come during a, a big week of, of news. For banks and for Goldman, which um, which you know beat on earnings last week, and uh, it's had a, a pretty good run of late there. Yeah. So, do you mean that you said that usually they announce these after they've raised the money? Have they not raised the money for this fund yet? They have not raised. They have not. They're just starting to market it. Interesting. So, why are they announcing it now? Oh, they didn't. Ah, oh, very nice, Liz Hoffman. Very good. So uh, intrepid reporter, intrepid Liz. reporter, Liz Hoffman. And I like the well, way the, you, I, mean, I, I like the, the way Liz went at that too. You know, it was very subtly done. Excellent. The, the and, question, and, the, and maybe maybe they're just out of practice too because they haven't released a private equity fund in what like eight years. I mean, it's, it's been a long time. Two thousand seven yeah. was so, the yeah, last time, and they, it was a twenty billion dollar fund. It's their first since the crisis. Uh, it, it, this is a, a part of Wall Street that pretty much all of the banks, except for Goldman Sachs, have gotten out of. Um, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Citi either sold or spun out their private equity arms. Um, you know, between like 2010 and, and 2015, um, in anticipation of of regulation that was coming, that's now basically arrived. The Volcker Rule, indeed. Now, so why that just you know raises the question: Why is Goldman doing this? It's a very fair question. Uh, at the end of the day, the answer is that it's still a pretty profitable business. Um, Goldman has like a, private equity is much more part of their DNA than it ever was for someone like J.P. Morgan um, or Citi. You know, they've been in merchant banking since they raised their first fund in 1986. The group um, has been in its current form since the early 90s. 
They've raised, uh, this would be their sort of seventh big broad buyouts fund. They've put a ton of money to work. They were a huge player in the boom in the mid-2000s. Um, so they, you know, this is just much more part of their history than others. Um, the other piece is that, you know, I think they think they can work their way around regulations and uh, they're they're pretty smart and pretty good at this, and uh, so they're committed, I think, to a place that most other banks have have abandoned. Yeah, like and Volcker Rule is definitely a significant issue for Goldman and private equity, but I think they view it more as a speed bump than a roadblock. They can still do this business, they can still make money, they can still use it as a as sort of a means to other good business, um, and it really is in their DNA. I mean, Liz had this great data in the story that showed, you know, all these big names in private equity: uh, TPG, Apollo, uh, Blackstone. But yet Goldman still had the second biggest buyout fund ever, uh, and it trailed Blackstone's uh, fund, which was the largest by only uh, 0.1, so like $100 million. So that, that's a huge business for Goldman. They're as big in it um, in terms of the size of their offerings as some of the, the giant private equity So they're course. getting back in, but this is it's a different environment. You said there are different rules in. This fund is not exactly structured like the, the ones they used to come up with, is it? Well, it's very different, uh, mostly on two fronts. First of all, it's a lot smaller. As Steve said, the last fund they raised in 07 was $20 billion, and this was that was the era of the mega fund. Um, the consensus has been that those didn't go very well. It's really hard to put that money, that kind of money to work uh, intelligently. Um, so it's, it's much smaller, 5 to $8 billion, and, and most of it's not Goldman's money. So Goldman and employees put about $9 billion into that last fund. They didn't give the breakdown, but let's assume Goldman itself had like 6 or $7 billion of balance sheet money in the fund. Uh, Volcker limits banks to owning just 3% of the, the total money in any fund. So on the high end here, you're talking about $200, $250 million. Um, so that, that Hello, Telestimos. How are you? So that I was, limits. I was sneaking into the studio. Sorry, Liz. That limits the upside here, right? So they can only make so much money on their stake in the fund. The idea with regulators, I guess, is that they can only lose so much money if this goes badly. Let's talk about the environment for you know private equity. This sort of takes you back to your former beat, since you just got off the M and A beat. Um, it hasn't been great for private equity this year. It hasn't been pr- great for private equity for some years. I mean, you know, you have stocks trading at all-time highs. Valuations are considered very rich. And you have a lot of strategics, you know, looking to do deals right now. Yeah, you just hit all the points. This is a, a tough time for private equity. A lot of uh, sponsors are having trouble spending money they've already raised. As you say, um, public equities are very expensive um, a lot of the boom in the M&A market over the last year or two has been corporates who typically can pay more than private equity because they have cost savings. You, know, you combine two businesses that are similar, you can cut out a lot of costs. And private equity doesn't really have that. Um, and they also typically promise higher returns, which means they have to be a little cheaper on the front end. So it's been a, a uh, you've seen the, the amount of like big public to private buyouts uh, is, is, has come way down. They're spending, you know, money in different places. They're buying private companies. They're doing sort of structured deals, um, but the ability to like deploy a lot of money in like a ten billion dollar, you know, think about buying. I don't know, uh, you know, the, the, those big public companies of, of the last generation of um, linens and things. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, oh, you're yeah. not going to see those. So if if they're launching it sort of late this year, early next year, when does the environment have to be better again? Like if it if it recovers, say, like in two years, is that a, a decent time frame for Goldman, or is that too late? No, they should be fine, right? I mean, the most private equity funds try to deploy, you know, over the first call it 
let's say you have a 10 year fund, right? You want most of it out the door by like year five or six, and then you want to start harvesting. Um, look, I, they will absolutely find places to put their money. One thing Goldman does very well, it's, it has this huge network of, of connections and, and clients and a really, they are very much at the middle of a lot of things. And, um, you know, on the other hand, they have a disadvantage that a lot of big private equity firms don't, which is they have sort of a built-in uh, conflict, f- f- frankly, right? If, if, yeah. if they find a deal they like, it's possible that their bankers are close to them or that they've lent that company money. And so they have to, right up front, um, they have to decide internally, Goldman, where do we want to be on that? And that may be that they end up putting a bid and trying to buy it or teaming with someone to buy it, but it may be that their private equity guys have to sit it out because, you know, the bank is, is otherwise engaged. Well, then, and, and to get back to your... You mentioned that they can only have 3% of their own money invested in this fund now. If they can only have 3% of their own money invested in it, how do they actually make this worth their time? How do they make it profitable enough that it's actually worth their time to even be in this business anymore? The same way that other private equity fund managers do, right? You take um, There's a management fee, which you know depends, but it's these days it's typically between 1.5% and 2% of assets right, across, right off the top. So that's a ton of money. Uh, and they have carried interest, presumably to be another 15 or 20% of profits, assuming the fund sort of meets some some baseline return rate. Uh, and so that's where, I mean, those those fees, very, I mean, it's very plain vanilla asset management, right? They're not going to be making this huge profit with their principal stake. So they kind of have to just turn into a, you know, just a, a plain old investment manager. Also lower risk, right? If, if this is a terrible investment 10 years from now and it, it just doesn't do very well, it'll it'll be less painful for Goldman shareholders than it would have been in the old environment. The idea with Volcker was to keep the the, the risk that that those big swings would infect other parts of the bank. But for what it's worth, it, it's, it, it's a disadvantage to them on the fundraising, which is that investors like to see skin in the game. And um, Goldman tried to raise an energy fund a couple of years ago after or anticipating Volcker. And they got a little bit of pushback from investors that, um, you know, people like to see the, the sponsors' incentives aligned with investors. Also, the cachet of investing in a Goldman-branded fund also goes out the window. Uh, a less noticed part of Volcker is that you can't call it a Goldman fund because the thought is that if you have an asset management product, be it a, a, a mutual fund or a money market fund, um, that is tied to, um, that is tied to the, the bank, uh, the big bank, if you name it Goldman, people will think it's backed by uh, the federal government or a sort of taxpayers, and that's not the case in this one. So this is one that's going to be called West Street Capital Partners. It doesn't quite have the same ring as, as I'm invested with Goldman, but there there you have it. Though it's worth noting their first fund back in 86 was called Broad Street, and mm-hmm. they seem to do just fine after that. So. Ah, started something big, perhaps. One, one of the questions uh, sort of I have is, the funds prior to that big twenty billion one actually, you know, had good returns. I think it was like two point five. You said in your story, um, you know, the question though is, doesn't this sort of speak to you know the state of uh, you know banking for Goldman right now, and and Morgan Stanley too? Like they're they're struggling to find ways of making money and growing. And is this sort of like a shot to sort of you know boost um, revenue? I think the banks are looking. F- they're, they're not in the. They're not trying to cut profitable businesses at the moment. Okay. And you know you can think through the returns on something like this. But you know a one and a half percent management fee on eight billion dollars is is a ton of money. And and um, at the end of the day, the returns, the ROE, the return on equity in these things is higher than other parts of the bank. So um, you know cu- cutting those ties is is not you know the most palatable thing to do. And um, 
you know, like I said, th- this is a much bigger part of Goldman's DNA than it is elsewhere. And I think they, they think they're good at it. And they have historically, as you say, been very good at it. The trends have come down a bit, but they had an 05 fund that returned, you know, more than two times its money, a 2000 fund that returned two and a half times its money. So uh, th- there is money to be made here. And I think you're right at a time when banks are struggling elsewhere. I don't think they're turning away profits anywhere. All right. Liz Hoffman, thank you very much for coming in. We really appreciate it. Always love to have you on. Pleasure to be here. Talk to you soon. We will take a quick break. We'll be back right after this. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul and Stephen, Aaron Lucchetti, and we have swapped Telus Demos in for Liz Hoffman. Liz Hoffman went back to go work, and we have taken Telus away from his work to spend a few minutes with us to talk about a story. And, and look, some of you out there, a lot of you younger, hipper folks out there, you probably use your, your Venmo, maybe use PayPal. To, to you, maybe mobile payments are, are not a big thing. But uh, trust me, to a lot of us older Luddites, mobile payments are a really kind of new frontier. And the banks tell us demos, and that's why we're having you on here with the story. Uh, the, the banks really see this as a, a big opportunity for them now. Well, let me let me let me clear something up before we get into it, which is that um, interest. So so twenty uh, percent of people of the of U.S. population has used their smartphone to like send or receive money, mm-hmm. like a like a Venmo type thing, yeah. right? What percentage of millennials would you say? Have if it's twenty twenty two percent for the U.S. Oh, the population, whole population. Yeah. what percentage of millennials have done that? One hundred and thirty. No percentage. I'd, I'd, no, I'd say I'd say one hundred and one. Wait, no, that's not that's not possible. <laughs> so I'm how, trying to how, make you. I'm what, trying to make you feel better. Yeah, Paul. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, well, how many options can you we? You guys share? have ruined this game. <laughs> Thank you. But the answer da 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 is thirty two percent. So it's actually not even a sort of universal activity among. Millennials, wow, which is a Very I think a common misperception. Right. Like every millennial is running around Venmo. Well, what the hell are they doing on their phones? I see them on their phones all the time. What are they doing? I think they're pokey going is or something. Po- yeah, I don't write about that, so that's okay. another realm. So, so let's talk about your story. You and uh, Robin Seidel wrote about banks and per- you call it person to person payments. Person to person payments. That's right, because you know a peer. You, you should. It's definitely going to a person, whether or not they're your peer. I mean, that's for you to decide, really. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but that. All joking aside, uh, the banks are seeing that despite the low adoption, that peer-to-peer or person-to-person payments are going to be a critical financial product of the future. That, yes, that's, today that's, people people still use a lot of cash and people still write checks to each other, but that and, – and, and they've been sticky. They've been stickier than I think people expected. But that at some point in the near future, the majority of us are going to be sending money around in that way. And also a couple of other things, that we're going to be using those apps to pay in stores, Mm -hmm. which is something that we don't really do today, and that those apps are going to be a gateway to other financial services, right? So if I'm using my Venmo or Circle or some other kind of non-bank app to do those things, what's to stop those companies from offering me some other financial service, right? From saying, hey, by the way, you might you're sending a lot of money. How'd you like a little loan? 
oh, hey, we see you've got a lot of money coming in. Why don't you invest a little bit of that? In so I future. think the banks are starting to worry right. that that's going to be the way the world So in the out. future, the cashier might be your, like, digital payments ambassador or something. Like, they're, they're basically going to – they're going to sit there and they're going to not even really take your cash or, or even your credit card. They might just help you get your phone to zap the, the money. I mean, I definitely right. walk into stores today where it's like cash is the awkward option, right? Like, if you walk into your little hipster, you know, thing and thing coffee shop, like – in Brooklyn, like they're not sitting there with a big cash register, like they've got their square terminal or some equivalent, and you know, uh, as many people are tapping their phones as they are, you know, taking out their wallets for cash. So, so your, your change is three dollars sixteen cents, and kind of a sneer that you're even using cash. What yeah. do you think? So, like, I'm Mister Fintech, so everyone makes fun of me, but I don't think that that that, that world is that far away. Well, and I, I don't, well, and I don't uh, think that like. Older people are going to hate it. I think it's going to be universally appealing to do things that way. I, I love the fact that we're like talking about this as the future, and this is essentially the foundation of the financial system going back like thousand person to person paying. I mean, like you know, it's just a, finding a technology that makes it you know somewhat easier, I guess. Well, and it also like there's. A lot of what our story is is like goes into the sort of like the the hidden world behind that. Like it seems like it should be a no brainer, right, to be able to just like zap somebody some money. But there are all these networks and these rival networks that have built up over time, right? So the way that like Venmo works, for example, is over something. Well, works in a few different ways, but the main way people think about it is ACH, right, which is the network that allows one checking account to talk to another checking account. That's actually how a check gets out of your account. That network has been around since the 70s. It's old. It has some security problems, and it doesn't work in real time, right? It actually takes three days for the money to move. And so that's one reason. That's one thing that's held back those kinds of payments, right? And the banks hate it when non-banks use it because the banks feel like they pay all this money to make that system work. And then, like, PayPal or whoever shows up and, like, uses that and doesn't pay as much into the system. So what's happening now is that finally people are developing – other networks for that to happen more quickly. So the banks have this thing called Clear Exchange, which is really wonky, and you don't have to remember that name because they're about to come up with a brand. But basically, it means that like J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo can send money to each other's accounts in real time without having to go over this ACH network. However, at the same time, PayPal is striking a deal with Visa to allow you to link your Visa. So if you have like a Visa debit card, right, which most people have from their bank account, if you put that into your Venmo account instead of your bank account. That money then does zap around instantly, and you can, like, go take it out of the ATM five minutes later if you needed to do that. So so there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that are beyond the just, like, hey, it seems like it should work this way. That That's, like, the kind of the wonky innards of it that are leading us in that direction. Hey, Paul, yeah. where's Bitcoin in this? Well, that's it, a great question. You know, That's it's, a great question, actually. It, it, it's very interesting because when I read the story uh, – I had a lot of thoughts, obviously, and one of them was – what I thought was really interesting about this story is that this is one technology that you can look – this is one service that the banks are developing that you can almost look at it as it should be high-tech, but it's clear that they see this as something that is going to be a commoditized product in a few years. Absolutely. And they're going to make their money off, off – Offering this as a gateway to other this services. This is a freebie. Right. Yep. Which is really amazing because three or four years ago, Bitcoin was the most arcane, ununderstandable, bizarre, anarchist product you could possibly imagine. And it's essentially the same. It's a different version of the same thing. And I remember saying to people maybe two years ago, not recently, no, pretty recent, but fairly recent, you know, that Bitcoin was going to have a lot of competition. And they, they all scoffed at that. They're like, no way. 
No one can compete with Bitcoin. No one understands. Like, we are building the product of the future. Nobody else will have it. And you are now seeing banks, tech companies, Apple, Samsung, everybody is coming up with a payments option. Well, well, and, and, and that people are trying to make payments as we, like, dollar payments between banks look like like one of the big appeals of of of, of Bitcoin trade, and you know, and I got an email after our story came out from the founder of of you know one of the notable kind of blockchain. I, I'll tell. I don't think it's a secret. Jeremy Allaire sent me an email, founder of Circle, saying, "Hey, isn't this a great case for for Circle? Right, because we are an instant internet based network that can plug into a million different other applications. Boy, it sure seems like the world is moving in our direction. And I think what's happening too is that the the banks." Despite the banks not really embracing Bitcoin, they clearly are afraid of the Bitcoin and the blockchain and the way that, that you can make payments something that you don't have to go into yeah. a special actually, realm to I, do that. I, I actually, you can do that, and then Apple's going to stick it in messages, right? right? So that like they can they open up their development platform to allow whoever, whether it be Square or someone else, to kind of plug in a little yeah. thing that allows you. So, so it starts to look seamless, and even though at the end of the day, blockchain has a lot of advantages to it that, that – you know, kind of on that again on that back end side, at least like money as we know it today is going to start to look more like that. Yeah, no doubt. And it, it's a race to that endpoint, and it's just a question of who's going to get there first and sort of control the process. Right, right now, uh, consumers want to do this, but it's just not really that easy because there's a lot of different folks, banks, technology companies, your phone makers, even the retailers who want to control that, and it's not really clear when you want to pay digitally, especially at a store. Well, I also, I also, I was just going to say, I, I find it ridiculous that anyone thought that Bitcoin wasn't going to face competition in this category. I mean, first of all, like there were all sorts of transfer issues in yeah. terms of timing and all this, where you couldn't actually go into a store and just use, you know, you know, a Bitcoin, even if they had you know, the, the technology to actually allow you to pay with Bitcoin, you, it, it would take time for that well, transfer. I mean, and, the, there, and there was that, risk. That issue, the, is more, it's, it was more about true believers versus... Exactly. You know, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. this was clear, like, you know, right. that, you know, banks were going to have to get into this well, business. And, and and let's keep in mind, they're catching banks are catching up and, and sort of m- money as we know it today is sort of catching up with... with Bitcoin and, and and other kind of blockchain based trends, whether it's a currency or just a mechanism, but we're just talking about all this stuff I just talked about, Clear Exchange, Venmo, and all that. We're just talking about domestic d- dollar to dollar transactions, transferring internationally. The right, I would say that the, where the real frontier, really helps. yes, and where yeah. I think blockchain is right now ahead of, and and if they move aggressively to win the kind of the mind share and the sort of like actual behavior of people to transfer between currencies over borders and things like that. And also, they, you know, th- there's a security discussion to be had. Go- may- maybe a Bitcoin or another blockchain-based currency is more secure. Anyway, I- I, the battle is certainly not over, but I think you're oh, right, no, Paul, no, no, that no. like domestically – the, the the banks are, are are not you know we we portray them all the time as these slow moving troglodytes right. and all that but like once the battleship turns it's a still a battleship yeah. you know and and you have to con- and I think I everyone think, has I to yeah no I don't think it's I don't think it's it's over by any means I just I think there's going to be a lot more competition than people thought and they already have the scale and that's absolutely the, that's I mean, important I think that's the important thing that's especially domestically important. yes where you know. You had the customers. You know, the, the other funny thing is, and, and Aaron, you know, writing these Ethereum stories lately, I, I thought of this especially, is doing these Bitcoin stories, doing Ethereum digital stories, and you, you've done them too. There's, there's so much of 
having to explain what's under the hood because it was such a foreign concept to people. And I remember thinking one one of the stories I did, you know, I was like, you know, if the if the auto writers had to explain how a car works with every single right. story, right. they would have so much trouble. Try- but they don't. They don't because everybody understands how a car works. <laughs> in, 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 a, in a pretty – well, I mean, no, they understand nobody how understands to, how no, no, works. But they understand – That's the point, they right? Understand, yes, I don't know, right? I don't know how, how my car turns right. gasoline into moving me, but, but, but I, they I've been doing it for my entire life, and I don't think well, about they it. Don't and under, that's the point. They don't understand that why it works. To get to. They don't understand why it works. They understand how it works. You just plug the thing but in it, and it It drives. should be the oh. point where I don't I – don't, I have no idea how my dollar gets from exactly. A to B, well, but I know that I can do that. I think that's where – that's what I think a lot of people in payments forget is that they come up with these whiz bang mechanisms that are really exciting and cool. But what they forget is that most people just basically never want to think about. Well, it. that's exactly where I was going with it, right? right. And we're going to get there sooner than I think people thought, because these products that these banks are coming up with are going to be seamless, and it's just going to be an interface on your phone, and you're going to understand how to press a couple of buttons and send it, and you're not going to care about how it's actually moving. And then eventually, when do uh, central banks start digitizing currency? I mean, they're already talking about it. They're already talking about it. But when? Right. I mean, it's not far off. It's not, you know, again, what you said before, it's it's not, you can see this so clearly, but I still, I don't think it's going to happen as fast as people think. I don't think cash is going to disappear. Not five or ten years. I yeah. just I don't see cash oh, no, disappearing I mean, I, I, in a yeah, decade. I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean I think central banks way. are moving in that direction, but they they have and you could talk to the Bitcoin crowd about whether, you know, you could replace central banks. I think most people even in the Bitcoin world realize that's not going to happen. It's just too tied to national governments. It's too much a part of what what uh, a government does is 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 work with the currency, work with the economy, but to digitize part of it and to to take out some of that that cost is very attractive. And yeah. they're looking at it in the UK Absolutely. recently yeah. and then Canada. So this is not I think five to ten years away you'll see real change. Will it will they ever replace cash? That's doubtful. But but it, it could be a much more important role that that reduces well, No, the I mean need for a, cash. a country's currency is one of its most powerful tools. We saw that with Greece and the Euro. I mean it's when they inability. didn't have it. Right. And they right. put in, in you know you know start up the printing presses, print money and right. inflate themselves out of that crisis. And you know giving that up I think is going to be uh, you know is a big issue for most countries. I'll yeah. also say that while while I, I agree that cash is not going away, the 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 way that you where you get cash, I, I and and that whole the, the 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 ATM and your bank being tied to that ATM, that kind of stuff is, I think, th- there is a potential to change a lot of that, right? So so a, a, a lesser told aspect of this is that you know if you wanted to put money into your PayPal or Venmo account, you can actually go into a lot of stores and hand them cash and get that money put onto that. And I think there's also the world of you know, prepaid cards and things mm-hmm. where, again, it works like you can kind of put physical money into a digital account in lots of new ways and then access it again in, in new ways too, right? And and there are – now everyone's experimenting with using your smartphone at the ATM. And, and again, it, it changes the delivery mechanism and the sort of the patterns of all these things. And so I think I think what we – what we need to keep in mind is that okay, cash isn't going away, but like, what other parts of like the behavior of cash may change, and how can they change? So I think I, th- I think I think you know I I know people are 
you know, people don't change their behavior on a dime. But I think people are open to doing new things if you offer them something that works for them and is cool right. and exciting. No, so. no pun intended on the on a dime for reference. Right? <laughs> Will the dime stick around? The dime is here to stay. The, di- the dime is dead. Calling it now. Wow. The dime is. De- you heard it here first. I'm dropping a dime on the dime. <laughs> How long have been people calling the end of the penny? That's what I want to know. Well, right. Exactly. Around. All of this you stuff know what? is, and you big know, penny decades. just keeps keeps <laughs> chugging along. The copper players, they just, whatever metal that is. It's copper, right? Little, it's like, like copper zinc, plated. Yeah. It's, 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 you know. Again, one of those things, I, had, I have no idea. It's basically garbage on the inside. And yet, compacted garbage. Yeah. How dare you speak about the penny like that? Hey, man. I, listen, I'm a, I, you know, I know I wrote the Bitcoin book and everything, but I'm a cash guy. I, I still when I get change I look at the pennies to see if they're if they're the old leaf ones or if they're the Lincoln Memorial ones and I collect the old pennies. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. I do. I'm, I'm I do. I have a 1914 penny. That's my oldest one. The seat next to him is available in the office. I tell you, this is a guy to sit near. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Right now, the seat the seats on both sides of me are wide open. <laughs> really? Nobody really? wants to sit. You mean near all, me. telling everybody about your pennies hasn't uh, <laughs> hasn't made everyone want to sit next to you? No, no, no. <laughs> it's usually him screaming about his lawnmower or Snapchat that has chased everyone off. Yeah, those two things are. He doesn't understand It'll, how. He are you Snapchatting? He can't get Snapchat. My lawnmower, by the way, is doing great this summer. My lawnmower is purring like a baby this summer. Lawn looks great. Having a great summer with my lawnmower. Have you heard me complain about it once? No, you haven't. Exactly. He was on with customer service for I think you know an hour <laughs> one day. I know. I know when the seasons change because during the summer you hear Paul on the phone talking to like his lawnmower dealer. <laughs> And during oh, no, the winter, no, no. you hear Paul salt. on the phone with his rock salt guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's how I keep – because I don't sit near a window, so that's the right. only way I know what season it is nice, outside. Nice. I'm glad I can be a, a reliable service for you like that. That's – yeah. All right. There's uh, an app for that. Let's leave it there. Tell us, Aaron, Stephen, Paul, everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll catch up with you later in the week. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.